We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hey, everybody. I'm WB. I'm an alcoholic. Really grateful to be able to be here today talking about sobriety in 12 steps, which is honestly my favorite topic. I always like to start by saying I absolutely love Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything good in my life comes from my being in this program. My ability to keep good things in my life comes from my being in this program. The gifts I've gotten from this program are things I didn't even know I wanted that are make my life a really incredible, make my life really incredible. Uh, I have a lot of love in my life. I have a lot of joy in my life. I have a lot of freedom today. And I couldn't say any of those things when I got here. To qualify, my sobriety date is February 1st, 2004. I just took 18 years, which I can't believe. And I feel like I've had multiple lifetimes in sobriety and certainly previous to sobriety. And it's my belief that that will continue to happen (laughs) because a life in AA uh, is full of adventure. And I think if you're doing it right, it's full of a lot of risk-taking, a lot of just being with yourself in real time, taking a look at what it is you really want to be doing with your time here on the planet. and. and doing that consciously, which is a beautiful thing. So I grew up in Connecticut, a town that was really beautiful and also just a really tough place to be. There was a lot of sort of competition and expectations and pressure amongst the kids and adults. Uh, I think everybody just felt pressured to, to sort of show their the best side of themselves all the time didn't you know you couldn't admit to any type of vulnerability i did i never felt uh like i belonged there i just didn't feel like i related to the people that were around me i also was being hurt um as a child and the adults in my life weren't capable of showing up and protecting me, which I don't fault them for today, which is also a gift of the program. I think everyone around me was doing the very best they could. And I think there just was a lot of pressure and uh, what was happening to me just wasn't loud enough to get anybody's attention. But But it had my attention. And I just got very early on, like age three or five or someplace in there that I was kind of on my own and that I didn't, I couldn't really trust people and that, that I, that I had to sort of fend for myself. The reason I mentioned that is because that belief system that got reinforced in me as a kid, and then again and again in the life I've lived after that until sobriety combined with alcoholism is really convincing really that 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 idea that I'm alone in the world that I should just isolate that nobody understands me that nobody understands what I'm experiencing 
and no one can really see me accurately, uh, hear me accurately. Those are all amplified by alcoholism. I don't know any alcoholic that doesn't feel those things or that hasn't. Uh, that was my experience. And, and I sort of set my mind on getting out of that town and I couldn't wait to do it. And, you know, my first drug of choice was for sure fantasy and food. I really didn't pick up in any meaningful way until I was out of that town, primarily because I was terrified of what my parents would do to me. So I was always sort of the designated driver once I got my driver's license and I was always the one that was abstaining. And I believe that in the very back of my my mind, I knew that once I picked up, it was going to be on and I wouldn't be able to stop it. That wasn't, that wasn't a fully conscious thought, but looking back, that's, that's sort of the feeling that I had. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to be dependent on drugs and alcohol. So I finally got into a, a conservatory program for what I do. And that was a, all the way across the country in California. And I was super excited to get out of that town and go do what I do. And, you know, I was one of 30 people picked out of 3,000 students to do this program. And I felt really honored and lucky and excited. So I came out to California, four years of total bliss, just with a group of people that felt like my real family. And we all kind of saw each other clearly and really supported each other. And all of our classes were together. So the same 30 people traveled through four years together. We got really close and we did our work together. And it was fantastic. I excelled in that environment. I left my mark on that school and felt really proud of that and had this assumption that when I got out into the world, I would be recognized in the same way, that people would be able to clearly see what I was capable of and that they would want me on their projects and that that I would have a sort of easy time of that. Like I, I think that was my assumption. I was in for a rude awakening. So when I graduated from college, exactly the opposite opposite of that was my experience. It was hell and I was terrified and nobody sort of walked me through how you balance a checkbook or keep a roof over your head or any of those things. Change the oil in your car, uh, you know, do your taxes well and on time and accurately. So I was just kind of figuring all those things out myself because, of course, I didn't ask for help either. I thought I was supposed to just figure it out and know how to do things. Very quickly after I left university, I got a job at a bar. And very soon after that, I was drinking on the job, which was encouraged. If not encouraged, it was definitely not. Uh, frowned upon. We were allowed to to do that while we were working. Uh, I worked in a jazz club and customers would regularly buy us drinks. And then, you know, I was also imbibing behind the scenes in the kitchen. 
I was already a smoker. I was doing that a lot. Very quickly, my alcohol habit grew to an alcohol and marijuana habit. And then that started growing to alcohol, marijuana, and other things. I met a guy who had had an on-again, off-again heroin problem since he was 14. And he currently, when I met him, was battling that. He was in a, a tough spot when I met him. And he had just been clean for a little while, but he was on his way to picking up again. And he introduced me to heroin, cocaine, crack, speed, uh, combinations of those things. We started by smoking them, and then eventually we were shooting most of everything we were taking. Uh, alcohol was a constant throughout this, and so was marijuana. Those were two tools that we kept uh, well stocked on because they kept us, that, that was sort of the the bare minimum. It would kind of kept a foundation going while these other things would spike and, and we come off of them. We had to always make sure that we had enough alcohol. And, you know, we became, we became these like amateur chemists and the goalpost is always moving because what, what took care of you yesterday is now advanced a little bit to something else. And, you know, we had someone flatline in our apartment. I, for the first time in my life, was somewhat violent, sort of putting my head through the wall when I got frustrated, just did not recognize myself. I still can't believe that that's how we were living, but we were. You know, it got to a point where <laughs> we were running uh, our electricity off of a extension cord that the upstairs neighbor had been nice enough to throw down to our patio until they were figured out that we weren't just dealing with a momentary lapse of uh service that that we were we were stealing their their power and then they eventually just unplugged us and we had to figure it out but it just was this sort of like it just felt like we were on the edge of survival all the time you know, the people in my life were not interested in being around me, obviously. A lot of my friends disappeared. My boyfriend was, I was bankrolling this whole thing on my savings. He was stealing from me to go get his own score. And then also we went together to purchase every day. And very quickly, my savings account was drained. I wasn't employable. I was suffering from horrible panic attacks that would happen about every 15 minutes. I, I would feel like I was going to black out and I just learned how to breathe differently so that that didn't happen. And then as soon as I was stable enough, I would get something in my system to manage the anxiety. Eventually I got a dog because I was afraid to go outside. Uh, I just, I got agoraphobic. I was afraid to go anywhere. I just, I felt, everything felt terrifying. And I also didn't want people to see how bad I was uh, because I was convinced that if they did, they would have me institutionalized because I could feel myself kind of starting to split off from myself, which is what I believe happens to people when they get really far down the road with alcoholism. I see people on the street who I'm assuming are suffering from one mental illness or another. Certainly alcoholism is a mental illness. And at that point in my 
using, I, I absolutely understood why a person would walk down the street having an argument with themselves. Like I just felt myself becoming two people. It was wild and really terrifying. I was waking up in the morning every morning with delirium tremens. And it was like every day was a full-time job to figure out where are we getting the money so we can go cop. And then, you know, how do we get enough of it so that we don't have to suffer at any point during the day? And how do we go and get it without getting pulled over or arrested? So it just was a really dark existence. And I eventually decided, okay, you know, most of my primary relationships are gone at this point. I wasn't happy with my boyfriend. We were constantly fighting. I didn't trust him. I didn't want to be living the way that I was living. And I decided that I was going to move to Las Vegas and just end it. I was going to use to death. So I brought my dog with me and we got in my car and drove out to Vegas to the one remaining friend that I had who was living there. She helped me get into an apartment. I worked a job and every penny I made went to the dealer and to alcohol and to marijuana. I could barely pay my rent. Uh, I had three pieces of furniture in my apartment, one of which was a child's training bed, which is what I was sleeping on, a floor lamp that I'm pretty certain didn't work most of the time because I wasn't paying my power bill either, and my computer that I had brought with me from Los Angeles. I, I was miserable. Very quickly, my car got impounded because I parked it sideways in a handicapped spot. I couldn't afford to get it out. So now I'm stuck in Vegas, no car. Things just kept getting worse and worse. I really thought, oh my God, I'm not using to death. It's not, my plan is not going according to plan. I didn't feel like I could just kill myself through traditional means. That was too scary to me. But I did not want to continue living the way that I was living. And I started to become willing to do things that I hadn't been willing to do before in terms of accepting help from family. I was always afraid to do that because I was afraid that there would be terms attached to that that I didn't feel capable of meeting. But at this point, I got help from family getting back to Los Angeles. I I started applying and interviewing for jobs, uh, which I didn't get right away because I was still a total mess. And, you know, having to have a minimum of two bottles of wine in my apartment at all times, and I was still smoking a lot of weed. I wasn't doing heroin or cocaine at that, t- at that point. I had been able to let those go, for which I am forever grateful. I don't know why or how I was able to do that. And I don't remember coming down off of it, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, I've had a lot of friends, some of whom who have died from heroin. And it's, it's, it's really gnarly. I definitely have what I would term bad alcoholism. It's, it's, uh, it jumps from substance to substance. I just consider myself exceedingly lucky that I didn't overdose or find myself unable to function without 
continuing to use heroin. I, I really honestly, to this day, don't know how that was possible. I have no idea. Anyhow, I got back to Los Angeles. I was seeing a therapist. I now had a car. I would go to drive home from the therapist's office and my car would drive straight to the dealer. And I, before I knew what was happening, I would kind of come to in front of the dealer's house. It scared me because I, I was not conscious of the time between leaving the therapist's office and getting to the dealer, but that happened over and over and over again. I just felt so far away from being able to do the kind of work that I knew I'd been built to do. And, um, and I knew I wasn't going to be capable of doing that addicted and alcoholic. I started thinking about these friends of mine who over the years had invited me to give them cakes at meetings, which at the time I thought was just this very sweet gesture to show me how much I meant to them, <laughs> which I'm sure it was on some level, but they were trying to introduce me to the program and they did. And it took me years after that to come, but what they did in doing that. And these were people that didn't know each other. There were uh, at least three of them that separately invited me to AA meetings before I really even knew what AA was, asked me to give them cakes. And therefore I sat through at least three whole AA meetings before I got sober. I believe these people were trying to help me into the program and I, it went completely over my head. I was like, this is fantastic. What the things they're talking about are amazing. You know, I had always considered myself exceedingly spiritual. I had been a, a seeker most of my life. I had started praying on my own at five. I had read all kinds of different philosophies and spiritualities from all over the world by the time I was 16. And I was just very interested in that and really believed in and still do believe that there is a unif a unifying energy and that that we're more than just physical bodies and that was not a hard concept for me to embrace and so when i came to a meeting of aa and i heard what people were talking about i i was kind of blown away and i my thought was legitimately this is so great for these people <laughs> If only I needed something like this. I just wasn't ready. I just, there was no chance at that time that I was going to identify as an alcoholic. I could not imagine going through 10 minutes without putting something in my system. There was no way. But when I started to become ready because the alcohol and drugs weren't working anymore and they just consistently were making my life worse and worse and worse and worse. I became willing to entertain some ideas other than my own. And I remembered these people and I thought, I wonder if that program can help me. I found a meeting just down the street from me uh, at a little coffee shop called Bliss Cafe, which is will always be near and dear to my heart, run by a sober man named Martine. I went to my first meeting there and I think it was in the middle of the day. I think it was like two 30 in the afternoon. I went into that coffee shop. It was stuffed to the gills. There was somebody speaking who sounded like the most intelligent person I had ever witnessed. 
uh, I, I now know he was sharing concepts from the big book. He was just talking about our program, but I just thought he was brilliant. And I really liked the feeling I got from the people in the room and they were laughing and I couldn't remember the last time I had laughed. And the guy sitting next to me, when they asked if there were any newcomers, kind of nudged me. And before I could think about what was happening, my hand shot up in the air and I said, my name is WB. I have this thing and I can't remember the last time I had a hug from another human being. And every last person in that meeting waited at the door for me. They handed me their phone number. They took my phone number. They spent time talking to me. And they told me how we do this thing. And I followed their instructions to the letter. Uh, They told me that I needed to call as many alcoholics a day as I could, that I should be calling somebody with around the same time I had, someone with less time than I had, and someone with more time than I had, that I should get a sponsor right away and dive into the steps because that's where the solution and the relief exists. They told me to get a minimum of three commitments a week. They told me to share at meetings. They told me to show up early and stay a little late, offer to clean, you know, offer to participate in in running this program and keeping it alive. And I did that. I got in the middle really quickly. For the first seven years of my sobriety, I went to a meeting every single day. If I missed a, if I missed one day, I would double up on the following day. I still to this day have a minimum of three commitments a week. And I still go to pretty much a meeting every day. But I share that with you about my first seven years because I was laying a foundation. And I knew I was laying a foundation because you told me that's what we do. But what I didn't know is how badly I was going to need that. You know, I was solidly in this thing. I was sponsoring a lot of women. I was, you know, active in all of my meetings. My life was starting to come together. I was in a relationship that I was really happy in. Things started to go south. I I think the first thing that happened was that I got mono and pneumonia at the same time. I was working a lot of hours, probably not sleeping enough, smoking a ton, just sort of running myself ragged. And I I got pneumonia and mono at the same time, which obviously wiped me out. I was running my own business at the time. It just forced me to kind of lay myself out. And I, I knew I needed to, but I could not stop smoking. You know, I went back for a checkup with my doctor and he knew that I was smoking and he was like, I'm going to take another x-ray of your lung. And, and he did, and there was a spot on it and he showed it to me and he said, that's the beginning of emphysema. You're way too young to have emphysema in your twenties and you need to stop smoking or you're going to drown in your own body. It scared the hell out of me. Uh, and I left. And what do I do when I'm scared? I partake in the very thing that I'm trying to separate myself from. So I went home and I smoked about it. And a couple nights later, I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't get a full breath. And I went outside on the porch and I smoked one last cigarette and I made a deal with myself that that was it. 
I asked my higher power for help with that. So now I also have raging eating disorders. And by this time I was in another 12-step program because 12-step works so well for me. I had found another 12-step program that was helping me with my eating disorders. So I had eliminated sugar and flour, which for me are narcotic. And I was now not smoking anymore. And I had given up seven years prior uh, alcohol and drugs. So for the first time since I was 16, probably, I had nothing in my system between me and reality. And very quickly, uh, within days, or, you know, it, it might have been weeks, actually. Within a couple of weeks, I started having flashbacks, PTSD flashbacks. I didn't know what was happening. All I knew was that I would be driving and suddenly my arms weren't working properly and I didn't have full control of my feet and I would have to pull the car over and stop and turn the engine off and just sit there until it passed. And what accompanied this paralysis that would come over me were these fleeting images that were flashbacks to my having been uh, molested as a kid. So I, w- I knew some of this information, but I didn't have all of the information. And what happened is that over the course of a little bit of time, these scenes were revealed to me sort of in, I almost think of them as like s- small, like short strips of film, like they, that j- like eventually just kind of came together and, and created like, okay, yeah, that's what happened. And I have this sensation of like, oh my God, that has been in the back of my mind my whole life. I, I knew exactly where these places were. I, I could see what I was wearing. I could see where I was. And I recalled in detail what had happened to me. That was the first event at three. There were a few that followed that. I was raped again at 14. And then raped a number of times in in adulthood and I was only consciously aware of a few of those events but all these other ones started coming back in living color fortunately for me I had heard other friends of mine in program talk about trauma therapy I had no idea what that meant and at this point you know, trauma is something that people talk a lot about in the rooms now, but, you know, 11 years ago, it wasn't, uh, it was not discussed. And so I didn't know how common this is in the rooms. And I thought I was by myself. Fortunately, I had a couple of friends that had had really substantial things happen to them as well. And they had successfully sort of manage that with the help of a therapist who specialized in this area. So I started to see this therapist. I was in group and individual therapy for three and a half years. And that three and a half years, I'd say the first three of that three and a half years were the most painful time in my life. I really just wanted to go to a desert island and wait until it was over and then come back. I, I just didn't want to have to be seen while I was going through that. I didn't want to have to show up to work. I tell people that I felt like I was a bruise and 
the whole world was bumping up against me all the time. Like everything hurt. And it was just almost unbearable. And I started engaging again in my eating disorders and primarily in compulsive eating. And I put on 160 pounds in a year. That was because I was using food like I used to use drugs and alcohol, which was to numb me out and to go to bed. I didn't know how to fall asleep. And I certainly didn't know how to fall asleep when I was, my brain was working on all these things that had come up and the feelings that I was having around them. I also, at that point, didn't understand that a feeling has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that our bodies are really well designed to handle the way that we feel about things if we allow them to do that. But as an alcoholic, I was so used to putting something between myself and reality anytime I was uncomfortable that I didn't know how to do that. So my only choice I felt at that point was to try to blot it out with food, which, you know, just obviously made everything so much worse. And because I had been so in the center of AA and, and sort of this vibrant dynamic sort of member who just had lots of energy and was all about it, my demeanor changed drastically as this was going on. And, you know, from one week to the next, I was gaining 10 or 15 pounds. And so people that I had been uh, in program with from the go were alarmed and didn't know how to handle that. And they were very likely really concerned for me, but didn't know how to talk to me about that and didn't know how to hide their shock. I could not handle everybody else's feelings about what I was going through too. It was too much. So I stopped going to all of my regular meetings. I started going to meetings all over LA County where people didn't know me. I would sit in the back. I hung on to the two sponsees I had left at that point, which is exactly what saved my life and kept me in AA. I know it because I, I, I had, they were my only tether to the program other than the fact that I kept I kept working with a sponsor and I was cycling through the steps like just constantly because I had new resentments coming up all the time and so I I knew to take that through the step wash and put it through an inventory and I wanted relief so badly that I was highly motivated to do that and my sponsor at the time was happy to do it with me and I'm really glad that that's where I decided to put that energy and and I do believe that the steps were helping to heal me, but I also know from personal experience that there are certain things outside of alcoholism that the steps can't touch and that I need to get help with. I don't have a chance in hell of grabbing onto any healing if I'm not clean and sober. I just can't make the connection I need to make in order to heal myself if, if, that, if those channels aren't clear. But I also know that being clean and sober doesn't address all of what ails me. And that's me personally. That's not necessarily true of everyone. But I, you know, I have depression and anxiety. I have complex PTSD. I have multiple eating disorders that require a specific focus on those things. 
you know, that used to bum me out. It doesn't anymore. I'm so grateful that, that I have a program and that I can be available to the solutions that exist out there for me. And I can report that at 18 years, I am happy, joyous, and free, which I could not say up until about a year and a half ago. And I, I will say that that came at about the same time I finally was able to concede to my innermost self that, in fact, my primary purpose is to stay sober and help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. I had always resisted that because I have big dreams and things I'm here to do, and that hasn't stopped being true. But I learned over and over and over again through every experience that I've had in AA that the freedom I get comes from working with others and comes from uh, putting this first all the time. So it's not that I made a decision. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety because that makes me a great person. No, it was, that's where freedom lives. Like that's where I get it. And I want more and more freedom all the time. You know, when I first got here, I thought that I, was after uh, safety and happiness. I thought that's what I was going to get out of the program. And instead, what I now know I'm after is freedom. So anyway, back to, so I got through this tough period of time and it took a couple of years for me. It doesn't mean that that's going to be everybody's story, but for me it was. And I decided I was going to start talking about it in the rooms because I was going through periods of time where I was terrified that I would drink or use behind my own back or that I would hurt myself or I I just was on the edge of survival going through this thing and desperate and just trying not to kill myself on a daily basis. So I started sharing about it at meetings and and my shares were messy and probably didn't make any sense. But I was after solution every time I shared. And and when I shared and I let you witness me, I felt a little better. Even if people, even if I could feel people judging what I was sharing, I felt AA was witnessing me and I was going to get through this and I was going to get through it sober. And I did. And, you know, a couple of you. So, so at this point, I'm bopping all over the city going to meetings where people don't really know me which also made it easier to share about what was going on with me and leave it in the room. And then I, I was, I would dip into these pretty deep depressions while this was going on. And during one of those, I had a birthday come up. I think it was probably my eighth birthday. And I ran into a dear friend of mine in the grocery store that had gotten sober like two years after me. Um, And we've remained really close and we lived in the same neighborhood. He was like, Hey, what's going on? I haven't seen you in forever. And I stopped and chatted with him. He's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he's like, you still in the program? I was like, yeah, yeah. Cause you could see on me that I was miserable. And I said, yeah, yeah. I just uh, turned eight. I think it was. And he was like, oh, great. Did you take cakes? And I was like, no, no, I haven't taken any cakes. And he was like, why? Why haven't you taken any cakes? 
And I started to let him know that I was just having a really tough time. He was like, what are you doing tomorrow morning? And I was like, I don't know. He's like, I know what you're doing tomorrow morning. Meet me at this time, at this place. And you're taking a cake from me. And I begrudgingly agreed. He had me meet him at a, a meeting at Colfax and with uh, Colfax and I can't remember the cross street now. Maybe it was Colfax and Whitsit. And he gave me a cake and I stayed for the meeting and I really liked what I heard. I heard a lot of people with advanced sobriety still working the steps still looking to deepen and enlarge their spiritual lives. And that's what I needed. I needed to see people with time reinvesting in this thing in a way that was working for them. I decided to make that my home group. So I started to go to multiple meetings a week at that location. Very quickly, it became my home group. And I, and I was still in this period of time where I felt like I had lost all of my friends. Like I I was not in contact with anyone I got sober with on a regular basis. My sponsor had moved out of town. I was still working with her, but looking for someone local. I just felt like this, like a satellite just floating out in space by myself. And I, I, it was really painful. And I knew that I needed to create community and that I was going to have to make some friends, which just felt so daunting. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that's what I needed to do. I prayed about it. I asked my higher power for help. It dawned on me that I could just show up and be a friend to people that I wanted to be friends with, and maybe they would notice, and maybe we could, uh, become friends that way. And that's what I did. And that's exactly what happened. And I have the greatest friends today in AA. They are my best friends. We do all kinds of fun things together. We go on trips together. We uh, play, have a movie night. We we go to marathons. We <laughs> do all kinds of crazy things. It's really fun. You know, we went on a trip this summer and we were we gambled and we cooked and we laughed our asses off and it was great. I've had a better time in sobriety than I ever did uh, before being sober and, and never more fun than now. Like I, the, you know, I, I feel like I've really gotten to a place in sobriety where I'm really living this thing and it's about the people and it's about reaching out to people who are new and carrying the message and being of service and, you know, all those things that can sound like an overwhelming laundry list of things we do in the actual practice of them, they, they create energy and they create vibrancy and ability in our lives. I see it in other people all the time and I, and I notice it for myself constantly. And having gone through what I just explained to you or described to you, I have found I'm in a unique position to be of help to other women and some men who have gone through what I've gone through, who have de dealt with sexual assault and all that comes with that, PTSD and all that comes with that. 
I have been able, because of the program, to alchemize that in a way that I really can be a meaningful service to people that might not be able to get that kind of support from someone else. In that way, I feel my my experience has been alchemized and I I really wouldn't change a thing. I feel that way about AA too. I, I you know, the, the way I conduct my life on a daily basis, waking up, praying, meditating twice a day, you know, getting up early enough in the morning that I can do that without rushing, writing every morning, taking some sponsee phone calls before seven o'clock in the morning, uh, going to a meeting first thing in the day, taking a long walk with my dog and letting it be about him and not me rushing and and then going to work and making everything I do about being of service to alcoholics, but also to the world at large. And, you know, also making mistakes throughout the day and using the tools we have to deal with that, uh, making immediate amends when I need to, you know, evaluating the day with a 10th step, like all those things that we do that make my life gorgeous are not things I would do unless my life depended on me doing them. This affliction that I have that is a death sentence that is ticking just behind me all the time is the thing that has given me all the gifts that exist in my life. I feel lucky to be an alcoholic in recovery I get excited for people when they land here because I had no idea when I was new all of what I was going to learn and continue to learn. And like I said, the freedom I get to have and and the usefulness I feel in AA and in the world as a result of AA. I guess I want to say a little bit about higher power in that I refer to it as God just as a matter of convenience. but. You know, I mentioned that as a kid and well into my early adulthood, I was I considered myself extremely spiritual and went after a lot of, you know, just couldn't get enough of reading about different spiritual practices and religions and trying different ones on and just got a lot out of that. And I felt this vibrant connection with a higher power. I thought I understood exactly what it was. And then I got to AA and that served me okay for a while. And then when I hit this giant roadblock that I just described to you, I started having more and more trouble connecting to the concept of a higher power. I couldn't reconcile what had happened to me and what happens to so many people with a loving, caring God. And so I've just allowed myself to be in doubt and my concept changes all the time. Daily, my, my, my higher power concept changes. Currently, it's uh, most often this thing that my sponsor and I, it was my sponsors and I stole it because I think it's great. And that is, you know, dear great spirit, please help me to pause and know that I am enough and that the universe has my back. That really works for me. The idea that God or higher power is love really works for me. 
the idea that God or higher power is reality on some level really works for me. And, and lately my concept has been, you know, maybe God doesn't cause things to happen. Maybe God is the thing that I plug myself into so that I can respond to any circumstance from the best of myself. And that's what resonates for me today, that, I, that I'm not looking for God to deliver cash and prizes, but I am looking for guidance and connection and direction from a higher power to help me approach everything that comes my way in life. And when I pause and take the time to ask for that help, it always comes. But I have to pause and take the time to ask. One of the things I've learned over and over and over again about this program is that just taking in the ideas or knowing what a step does or having an idea what a specific working a specific step on something is going to net you at the end it's always more than what I think and I never get value out of it unless I actually do the work you know the the real healing in this program is in the steps and that's the way we we really get it into ourselves so that we can carry the message too and really be useful to other people the last thing I just want to say is, you know, we've been through this and are going through this pandemic the last couple of years. I've heard this statistic a number of times from various sources, and so I trust that it's true. And that is that from March 2020 to March 2021, in that one calendar year, alcoholic and drug addicted deaths just deaths. So this doesn't count people that were drinking or using alcoholically. So the people that died from drinking and using alcoholically, the number of those deaths had increased 35% in that one calendar year in the United States alone. And what that tells me is that alcoholism is its own epidemic that Alcohol and drugs are something that a lot of people reach for in order to manage being human. And that we are the lucky ones. If you've made it into this program and you've been exposed to this information, whether or not you've been able to hold on to your sobriety the whole time you've been here or not, you have access to the solution. And you're lucky for that. I'm lucky for that. This information is incredible. It's a wonderful way to live. If you're here, I hope you stay. And thank you for my life. Thank you, WB. I feel like I say the same thing when everyone's done. And I say, oh, I love listening to your story. But I really do love listening to these stories but I'll but I'll try to pivot and say something a little different uh but every story is so different and I you know I'm really surprised I love how you ended it I that's my favorite word love I love how you ended it it it's perfectly ended there but what's confusing if I were a newcomer is Shit, WB, you got 18 years, but you've only been happy for a year and a half, and then seven years in, and then three years of the trauma therapy, you're miserable. I'm like doing the math, and it it sounds like, well, 
why wouldn't I just keep doing drugs? So Mm. tell me about how you're not going to, how do how is the program going to work for you this time so that you don't end up in that dark, depressive state again? Is there something different you're doing now than perhaps you did before? Or would you maybe not do the trauma therapy? Like, talk to me about that, those pieces. Oh, uh, no, definitely not. Um, it's interesting that that's your take. I get that. Nobody's ever said that to me before. It's really interesting. Um, so my perspective on that is that, you know, what I lived through as a kid is what I lived through as a kid. And the things that happened to me after that are things that happened to me after that. And the reality of sexual assault, and, and particularly when it happens <clears throat> to a person that young, is that it rearranges your brain chemistry. So while I believe that I came out the shoot an alcoholic, for sure, I also know that a lot of what I was doing and using drugs and alcohol was to manage these unresolved feelings that I had or experiences that I had as a result of having been put through that. And I was also self-medicating a brain that needed chemical help. So until I got, so the idea that things don't, we don't get presented with things that we can't handle, whatever that means, right? Mm. I'm after the kind of faith that like, if my mouth is, if my head is in the mouth of a bear and I'm about to die, that I know for certain I am taken care of. That's the kind of faith that I'm after. Even if that means I die, that I'm taken care of and that everything is as it should be. That's that's what my practice in Alcoholics Anonymous is pointing me toward. I'm not there yet, but I'm a hell of a lot closer than I ever was before. Um, I was going to have to wrestle with this stuff no matter what whether I kept using, where I didn't keep using. And the reason that I didn't keep using was because I was miserable. It was horrible. It was way worse than, than any one day, uh, clean and sober. Um, that's how it goes for us. Like we pick up and, and initially it's great. Initially it helps me connect to you. It helps me connect to my higher power initially. And then that goes away very quickly, especially if you're alcoholic, that goes away very quickly. And then you're chasing that for the rest of the time and you're polluting your system and you're making your life harder. And it takes a while to really recognize that until the wreckage has gotten bad enough that you want to stop and you can't. Um, so, you know, when I first, uh, when I first got, this may sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but when I first got sober, uh, the person that I was going through the big book with one of the first times I did that was someone who told me that they wanted me when I read the book, if any word on the page was something that I couldn't rattle off the dictionary definition to off the top of my head, they wanted me to write that word in the margin and then find my favorite definition for it in the dictionary, which sounded like horrible busy work to me when he said it but then once I started doing it I started getting really into it because it really connected me to the text 
it helped me really understand what I was learning and taking in. And it just got me excited about the language of the program. And so I found myself one day, for whatever reason, in a library standing in front of an unabridged dictionary. And I decided that I wanted to look up the word uh, sobriety and the word God. And I wanted to see what my favorite definitions were for that. When I looked up the word sobriety, the definition I liked the most was unadulterated spiritual contact. And when I looked up the word God, my favorite definition was ultimate reality. So without spiritual contact, I had no prayer of ever healing what had ailed me. And those weren't the only issues I lived through. I came from a difficult household. I, I, we've had, we had a lot of fractured relationships in, in my family, all of which I've been able to heal on one level or another. And, um, and everyone in my family has met me half, well, everyone, but one person <laughs> has met me halfway in that. And, um, and we have gorgeous relationships today that I never dreamed I would have had before, but I was just going to be in constant pain, whether I was using or not. And the fact that I got clean and sober gave me a chance to address those things and get free of them um, because I never otherwise would have. So while it may sound, you know, my observation of the people that I got sober with is that they got in, they got this thing, they got through the 12 steps and their lives opened like a lotus, like everybody around me, that, that was their story. Um, but I guess maybe the service I can provide is for the people for whom that doesn't happen right away because we have other things that need addressing uh, in order to get to that freedom. Um, everybody has their own path, but there is there is no escaping that stuff um, without getting clear enough to have a, a connection to reality and to some sort of higher power so that you can gain the strength to, to go through what you need to go through. Um, the mistake I made that made that harder for me and caused me to have to turn to my eating disorder was that I was so intimidated by my perception of people's reaction to me that I went into isolation. Mm. So if, if, you know, when people come to me now with, you know, I, I'm sponsoring somebody right now who's in exactly that spot. And um, I'm telling her all the time, you need to call five alcoholics a day. You need to get to meetings. You need to open your mouth. And, you know, it's a lot different now. Like you hear people talking about trauma a lot in the rooms now, which I think is to the good because okay. they're, you know, you throw a rock in a meeting of an Alcoholics Anonymous and you're going to hit three people that have been through what I've been through. So the fact that we're now able to talk more about those things is good that there's more support to be had around those things is good. Um, but I can't heal. I don't have, a, I don't have a chance in hell of healing unless I am spiritually connected, which allows me then to also connect with you because by myself, I'm a goner. I don't think that was a tangent. And I think you answered, I think I asked like three different questions and I do think you answered all of them. Uh, I'm not a professional interviewer, obviously, but I think. I would never have known. <laughs> um, I think that that's, so 
part of the question was like, how do you prevent from going to that dark place again? And you, you answered mm-hmm. that right there at the end, which is just like, I cannot isolate. And I wonder if mm-hmm. with COVID and all of these Zoom meetings and things like that help people stay connected. So it's a safe place yeah. to be totally yourself. These yeah. rooms. Yes, it is. And, you know, um, one of the many beautiful things about the 12 steps is they, the process assumes that perfectionism or perfect to be perfect is unattainable. In fact, perfectionism is part of alcoholism, but, mm-hmm. but the 12 steps provide us tools for when we got, when we go off, not if we go off, when we go off. Yeah. And I could look at my story and say, oh yeah, there, there was so much of it that was hell. Or I can look at my story and say, I stayed clean and sober through all of that. And that's the perspective that I have is that I didn't find it necessary to pick up a drink or a drug one day at a time during that whole period of time and for 18 years. And because of that, I've been able to get to healing um, in my eating disorders and, and in a lot of other areas, which has me in a place in my life now, you know, there, there, there is benefit I get to have as a result of walking through all of that. The thing about AA is if we're willing to have the feelings and we're willing to take things through the step wash and we're willing to allow things to teach us things about ourselves and we're willing to take risks in how we deal with it, we come out the other side with tools we didn't have before an ability we didn't have before. I used to think of it as like a video game. Like you play the first level of a video game and you're like going through the game and it's like, you know, hit this thing with your arrow and you'll get a purple jewel. And you're like, why do I need a purple jewel? Okay, I'll do that. And then you get the purple jewel and then you graduate to the next level and you're three quarters of the way through. And it's like, you can only come through this door if you have the purple jewel. Oh, that's what I needed that for. That's how sobriety is for me. Like, it's like, I don't get to know what's coming. I just get to do what's right in front of me and try to do that to the best of my ability with my highest self at that time. Um, And, you know, if I could have done better for myself, I would have. But what I get to do with that is help other people avoid some of the pain I went through in, in dealing with that stuff. But pain is part of life. Like we don't, we don't get to avoid it. Getting sober doesn't mean that everything gets easy. It doesn't mean that life stops being lifey. It means that I can handle it. I can be with it. I can be in it and I can choose to believe until I have the experience to back it up that I can get through anything. And, you know, people in AA have, have always encouraged me in that way. And, um, and they've never been wrong. You're so wise. You're so wise. And, you know, you know, and, and in your broken state, you, you made a really wise comment there towards the end of your story too, which was like, you knew you had to create a community. You didn't want to do it 
you run into friend in the grocery store, you're at some emotional, perhaps spiritual bottom, and you get mm-hmm. back in and you knew, all right, I got these rusty tools in here. I got to like get them out and use them. But mm-hmm. my I, the way you speak is also very wise in this whole the experience gives us perception and understanding and knowledge and like more evidence and strengthens our faith all along. Anyways, I'm like paraphrasing. I'm I'm paraphrasing what you're saying. I don't know if that's what you said. That's how my brain translated. It does what it wants half the time. Yeah. I mean, yes. Eventually I, I have to get with the fact that, um, life is not ever going to be still water. There is no arrival point. There is no graduating from AA or from life or from, you know, this issue or that issue. I don't believe that we rid ourselves of our character defects in step six and seven. I believe we just are able to identify what they are. So on a daily basis, we can practice doing the asset instead. And we're going to fall on our face and make mistakes. And we're going to, we're going to revert to our character defects, which I now call character defenses because it helps me more. Um, But basically what those things are, are just survival mechanisms I've developed that don't really effectively work anymore. And so the steps allow me to specifically identify, Oh, this is the bag of bullshit that I use when I'm backed into a corner or uncomfortable or angry. Um, and I, and I, and now that I know that I get, I can make a different choice. I can't make a different choice until I know what those things are and how I've been doing it. Um, and the only way I can get to that is through the inventory. So there, there's this, the self-examination that we do in taking a look at how our diseased mind has us behave so that we can pause long enough for spirit to enter and make a different choice is, um, is all of it. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to get what I want. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have really hard days. It doesn't mean I'm not going to end up with, uh, you know, disease or difficulty or anything. There are no guarantees at all, except that if I'm spiritually fit, I can take on whatever comes my way and I can find benefit in any of it, which is remarkable. Like so few people get to have that. Like I, I, I marvel at people that have faith enough or, or the wherewithal to, try living that way without alcoholism. Like those people are even more rare, but it's like, they're out there. There are people who have spiritual practices that put themselves up against this kind of stuff all the time. I wouldn't do that if I didn't have alcoholism. (laughs) Only when forced. Yeah. 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 You had said a really key point. And that was when you talked about, higher power and guidance connection protection as long as you pause and like take the time to ask Mm -hmm. 
And um, that's key for me because I forget that I can just just take the time and pause and I will get guidance, connection and protection. And that's what the rooms sounds like have given you. A hundred percent. Yeah. For the newcomer. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, please. Well, I was going to wrap up, but I, we don't have to yeah, wrap yeah. up. Yeah, okay. yeah. Go for it. All right. So for the, because my sister recommends, I ask the same question in every episode. Thank you, Lisa. For the alcoholic out there still listening, perhaps suffering, or perhaps maybe not totally connected, what message would you like to leave with them? Try to engage in some controlled drinking and using. And if that doesn't work for you, we're here. Whenever you're ready. You don't have to be alone. And also, like, come have fun. Like, just come have fun. Come get to your life. Come get to get to come get the tools you need to be in the center of your life. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.